And we are on. Okay, well, uh, another installation here of scholars, uh, professors from LBC trying to sort through the COVID-19 crisis. We've um, almost got it, too. I think one more and we'll have it. Isn't that right? I think so. I mean, we were yeah. pretty close the last one. And it was pretty <laughs> much like yeah. pretty much answered. Right, right there, yeah. 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 I mean, we pretty much broke through. Well, that's problem. why we brought, we brought the heavy hitter in to, to clean up batter to sort of finish it off. I'm really surprised you guys didn't finish it all in your first episode. <laughs> we're trying to be gracious here. Mark, I lost you there for a second. I think we lost you there, Mark. We can see you, see your mouth going. Well, while Mark is doing that, uh, getting How about technical. Now? We okay? Oh yeah, we got you good, there. You're good, back. Good, good. I was going to fill in there, but you cut me off. No. Um, okay, so we uh, we brought in Dr. Mark Farnham. Um, oh, we've got some people who want to come in. Let's let them in. We brought in Dr. Mark Farnham um, to help us think through this uh, and coming at this from a couple different angles. Um, of course, all of you, we've been praying for Dr. Farnham um, for months. Um, as you can see, it, it, well, some of you will be able to see this, some of you only get to hear it, but his hair is growing back. I mean, so it's coming in. <laughs> it's coming in. It is coming in. And he is uh, received a clean bill of health. Um, but uh, a whole lot of suffering's gone on in the Farnham house. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to talk to Dr. Farnham, particularly as we go through this. I'd even like Dr. Farnham to talk a little bit about how some, how he has uh, extracurricular social distancing he has to do even still uh, to <laughs> yeah. kind of put some uh, perspective in this. Uh, but to talk to us about suffering, one, first of all, as a cancer survivor, as someone who uh, has a kidney transplant, uh, and a kidney transplant that makes you more susceptible to, to getting cancer um, and recovers in the middle of a, a pandemic. I mean, this, this sounds like something from the book of Job. Um, and so we wanted to hear from Dr. Farnham from that perspective. How as a sort of as a Christian, do you think through some of these things and the problem of suffering? But also Dr. Farnham is a theology professor at our school and we wanted to help him help us think through this theologically. Uh, dealing with suffering, dealing with pandemics, uh, things like this. And then lastly, uh, last part we wanted to do was kind of have Dr. Farnham talk a little bit as an apologist for us uh, and help us think about the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. And uh, we enjoy talking with each other. We have a lot of fun talking to each other. So this conversation could go in a lot of different ways, but that's the game plan. Anyway, that's, that's the goal. Good to start somewhere. That way you can be let down. Exactly. 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 Yeah. In front of so, people, that's the best. Um, and, and because I work in the library, there'll be some book titles dropped, Ooh, yeah. some names dropped and titles dropped that uh, I, I, I have a sworn duty to do that at least once a podcast. <laughs> so, all right. Well, uh, let's start this off. Um, Dr. Farnham, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you for, for uh, taking this time with us. I, I I just want to let you go. I want to I want to be a good point guard and just feed you the ball. So um, tell us. I mean, how are you processing all this with everything you've been going through? Uh, processing it hasn't been hard as far as the coronavirus because I've been in quarantine for about four or five months now. So it's just been a continuation of what I've been going through. <clears throat> but obviously, a great concern because I'm one of those high risk category people and uh, therefore have been very careful uh, to avoid contact with anyone who might be sick at all. But that's the nature of my life for the last uh, 10 years at least. Hmm. Hmm. 
And what are some of the, you were, you were, when we were talking about this, what are some of the extreme measures that, that, that the Farnhams have to take? Uh, my wife disinfects the house every morning before she leaves. And then when she gets home from work, she works at the hospital. So she's in a high risk environment, although she doesn't work in the main building anymore, thankfully. Um, another one is that my daughter's an ICU nurse at the hospital and has been caring for COVID patients. So we haven't seen her for weeks now. And um, hand washing, um, boy, I can't even begin to think of how many different things. Uh, just just extreme care in regard to everything. So constant washing and disinfecting to make sure that I don't get it uh, because of my susceptibility. Yeah. Uh, 15 years ago, I was diagnosed with end-stage renal disease, kidney failure in my late 30s. Uh, it was a complete surprise, had no symptoms except the, uh, the blood pressure going up, which I conveniently ignored because I was a man in my 30s. <laughs> but I was diagnosed with that five years later had a kidney transplant, so I'm coming up on the 10-year anniversary of that. And when you have an organ transplant, you have to take what's called immunosuppressants for the rest of your life. So every 12 hours for the rest of my life, I take medicine. And that suppresses my immune system enough that it doesn't try to reject my transplanted kidney. But one of the problems with that immunosuppressant medicine is it uh, makes you more susceptible to cancer. And uh, a little, almost a year ago, about nine months ago, I had a cognitive episode where I was freaking out mentally, uh, confused between the dreams I'd had the night before in reality. And what was really terrifying was I was babysitting my three-year-old grandson at the time and uh, had to get him home before I completely lost it. And they found a benign brain tumor through that. And that was dealt with relatively easily. But shortly after I was diagnosed with that brain tumor, they found non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and it's directly tied to my suppressed immune system. So the medicine that keeps me alive and keeps my kidney functioning well um, caused the, uh, the cancer that I've dealt with now for the last uh, six months. And by God's grace, now I'm in remission and uh, hopefully on my way to recovery. That's amazing. And, you know, Mark, when you, when you were going through that, you, you shared with the community, and I, I made mention of this to student services and really wanted anyone who gets all this recording, uh, supplement this discussion with uh, Dr. Farnham's article in The Echo, where he talks about suffering did and how it worked. And I think for me, that was a, that was a mind changer or a spirit changer, just because I, I think I'm one of these people that looks at something like the coronavirus and says, well, that's really not normal. My normal is health. My normal is longevity. But the way you talked about it was that the suffering had changed you and then you had changed your outlook and you, you had this phrase where you said suffering had work to do. And I wonder if you could tell us about that just to help us better understand. Yeah. It, it, the suffering that I've gone through in my life um, was the very first bit of suffering I ever went through. I, I can't think of any time in the first 37 years of my life where I had any serious health condition and mono in college, but that was about it. <laughs> didn't really lose anyone I was very close to. And in the space of a few years, was diagnosed with kidney disease. My mom was killed in a car accident, actually put into the hospital, severe brain trauma. I had to make the decision uh, for my sisters and me to uh, remove life support from her five days later. Two years later, and that happened on Easter weekend. Two years later on Easter weekend, my father-in-law dropped out of a heart attack. And then a couple of years later, I had my transplant. So since then, and then just recently with all the, the cancer that I've gone through the last year, 
I've come to realize how little I calculated or counted on suffering interfering with my life plans before then. Mm-hmm. And I often challenge young people as you think forward to your life and you have all the plans, that's good, make plans, uh, prepare yourself, save, do all the things you need to so that your plans can come true. Uh, calculate in there suffering, loss, mm-hmm. uh, maybe disease, maybe serious illness and how is that going to affect your life and a lot of uh, the reading i've done in the last couple years tim keller especially has been helpful his book counterfeit gods where he talks about anything that uh, i get my identity from anything that uh, has my heart more than god anything if i were to lose it would make life feel not worth living for is an idol and you can be doing all kinds of good things um And yet your real love is maybe security, uh, safety, your income, your job, affirmation from others, love from a particular person. And yet all those things, those good gifts of God can become idols. And one of the things God does in suffering is he takes those things away from you, pulls out the chair from underneath you. When you fall down and it hurts, you come to realize I've been loving and trusting other things in God. And And one of the great blessings of suffering, my wife and I would tell you this, is that in the last year we have uh, grown closer to Christ in a way that we never have in our lives before, such that I would say it was worth it. Mm. Wow. Mm. So help us understand that, Mark, because I mean, standing for where I am not, and I'll just only say yet, I I pray with my kids frequently and say, guys, this this is the good times. And we want to look at these and remember that God has been good to us. And even when things happen that are bad, which are going to, there's no sense mm-hmm. believing they won't. So how do we prepare in the meantime? You say, you say idols, you know, we've, we've, I know I have must have crafted some, whether I know I'm relying on them or not. Well, give it, give us some help. How do we, how do we prepare ourselves for, for this ahead of time? It's good. And, and you mentioned something that we see in Ecclesiastes where, the um, writer of Ecclesiastes says, when times are good, enjoy. And uh, when they're bad, consider. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have, to, we have to enjoy the good times when they come, the blessing of God that's, that's, that's done to the glory of God, but also to realize that suffering uh, is part uh, of normal life. And that's why Peter says, well, don't be surprised when a fiery trial comes on you as though it's something odd or foreign. We come to realize God's desire is to purge us of our love for um, things and love for even his good gifts over him. Suffering will do that. And uh, probably the darkest times in the last eight or nine months um, were right after Christmas when I was at home alone and suddenly my, as a result of my shrinking tumor, uh, cancerous tumor, my bowel perforated and I was lying at home, I was sitting at home and suddenly struck to the ground and crying out, God be merciful to me and had to be rushed to the hospital by ambulance. And two days later had to have emergency surgery. And um, then the next couple of uh, weeks were some of the darkest. And um, my wife and I every night would um, read the promises of God and pray and, and cry thinking, you know, is, is this going to, is this going to be it for me? Am I done? Am I, am I going to die? And in that process, both took from us our love and our dependence on so many things, good things, security, comfort, so that we were just praying, Lord, all we want is you and all we want is your will to be done. And 
we trust you that no matter what you bring into our lives, uh, you will provide. So if you take me, Lord, you will provide for my wife. And, and my wife uh, told me, you know, she, over those few weeks, gained a peace that passes all understanding. Mm. And, uh, that's a sweet place to be where God is all I need. Mm. But it's a hard place to get to. Yeah, we'd like the easier, if there's an easier route, um, if there's a ticket, a get out of jail free card, I would prefer that one. But yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that's, that's not part of God's regular plan for us. Is I'd to, prefer like a suffering vaccine. There you go. Yeah, you know, right. just I'll take someone time. else's antibodies and I'm good. Um, right. <laughs> Mark, I, I, I want to ask you, did you and your wife, there's been a lot of talk, uh, Dan and I talked about this. Uh, the last uh, episode, and, and I've been reading about this uh, from secular sources. I think even the Harvard Business Journal talks somewhat about this, this idea of grief. Um, did you and your wife experience a sense of grief, and what were you grieving? And if you did, what were you grieving, and, and that type of thing? Yeah. Yeah, grief was uh, our constant companion for a number of months, because when all, when all this started, the prognosis initially was very positive. Don't worry, Mark, you won't have to go on chemo. We have this drug, Rituxin. It's very mild. That will probably take care of the problem. So we tried that for four weeks of infusions. And afterward, they said it hasn't affected at all. Now we got to start chemo. And then I began to have serious um, bowel obstructions, which just feels like someone's stabbing you in the, in the gut and twisting the knife. And so I went to the hospital three times in four weeks and spent four nights in the hospital each time. And and slowly as those months, those were, that was during October, November, as those months went on, we just grieved the loss of normal life. Mm. And we basically said, Lord, you know, you don't ever have to give us another thing again, just give us normal life. And, and yet he didn't. And for two or three months after that, then we went through even darker times. And grief is, uh, it is a good thing. It's, we should grieve. We shouldn't bury our emotions or pretend that things aren't bad. And yet even in our grief, we hope, but uh, you and I read the same article from the Harvard Business Review, where from a secular perspective, the author was trying to uh, tell people that during the coronavirus, uh, we were experiencing grief because we didn't, he didn't know how else to explain this idea of spiritual emptiness. And uh, that's really what's at the root of much of the world's fear and panic through all this. Is a, is a spiritual bankruptcy. And, and Tim Keller talks about that too. So does Charles Taylor, the sociologist yeah. in his book, The Secular Age. Age, yeah, yeah. Secularism, our society that has pushed God to the margins, has not left us with any answers or any tools to cope with difficulty and crisis and loss. And um, that's why the Harvard Business Review article talked about that strange feeling you're experiencing is grief. As Christians, we don't need anyone to tell us that. <laughs> right. But for yeah. unbelievers, they, they, they don't know what to do with this kind of panic and uncertainty because they have no hope outside of Christ. Yeah. Mark, a question I, I have, and, and I've been processing this because I, I agree with you. I think that there, but there seems there could almost be maybe two types of grief that we as the Christians might feel. Like one, we just want normalcy back, right? I mean, we, we, we want to prosper. We want to enjoy those types of things. But then you mentioned something else that, that sometimes suffering brings about um, a recalibration, that there are some things in our lives that need to be addressed, uh, idols that need to be addressed. 
have you processed or thought about like, okay, which grief am I feeling? Am I grieving the loss of my idol or am I grieving the loss of my normalcy? Um, yeah, I think the, when we, when we talk about grieving the status quo, it's, uh, we live in, we live in bountiful times. Yeah. You know, we live in comfortable times and uh, we do grieve that. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's part of the cultural mandates. We live in a world that's been cultivated and we experience a lot of the, the benefits of that, the conveniences of that. It's okay to, to grieve that, to mourn that. Those are good things, but we have to remember that uh, this world is not our home. And uh, especially when we take into consideration Christians around the world who live in terrible conditions, some who, who will never get out of them, um, you know, they don't even know what normalcy is to grieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, be, and their hope is set on heaven because life will not get any better than, than what they have now. So I think, I think it's both. Mm. Um, we, for a while, we just wanted things to go back to normal. But in the process, God also uh, made us realize that some of the things that we loved more than him, which was a problem-free life, uh, if you'd asked me, you know, it, would you like your life to continue the way it is? And, you know, you don't really go, grow any closer to the Lord and, or grow in, in relationship and knowledge of him. Or would you like a healthy dose of suffering and you'll really, you'll really grow close with God and, and grow in knowledge of him and, and draw close to him? Uh, boy, I don't know if beforehand, I, I think I, I probably would have said, I'm, I'm fine. You know, give me, give me a little bit of Jesus, but not, not the suffering if necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things you've said, Mark, too, in reference to that is that this is, and I'm, I'm thinking of our students, um, those that might be listening in, me, I'm, I'm trying to process this as well, and I'm going to try not to do too much of that on camera here, more interested in your thoughts on this, but is how as Christians then are we better tool? Because you say secularism really does not give us the kind of toolbox we need to handle this. And not, not that that proves one thing or another necessarily, but, but there's a reality here, right? And the, and the secular world cannot give us the tools necessary to cope with this kind of thing where a Christian doctrine does. So what, what kind of errors are we seeing in the secular world that they just can't seem to manage this? Well, if we're, if we're going with a secular worldview in which God has no, uh, no part because we disbelieve and we find him unbelievable, that's one of the characteristics of the secular age is, the belief in God just is implausible anymore. It's left people with no sense of transcendence, nothing outside of ourselves. And if they're going to be consistent with their evolutionary worldview and their atheistic worldview, um, then what they should be doing is saying, you know, when the coronavirus or other difficulties come into life, that's nature working out its process of natural selection. Um, and the truth is most, uh, most secular people still feel a spiritual sense that they're trying to deny or they fill it with um, with new age type of spirituality, experiential type of spirituality. But a good consistent evolutionist and atheist will say, hey, there's nothing to mourn here. This is nature uh, doing what nature does. And to, to apply it to popular culture, if you think about the, uh, um, the popular um, Marvel comics, series that just ended with uh, Endgame, the, the final battle there, where nature was calling out half the world population. Uh, I've seen a lot of those memes in relation to the coronavirus, uh, <laughs> because the whole point of that was the, the bad guy could also be perceived as a good guy trying to save the world through getting rid of the weak. And if you were a consistent Darwinian, 
um, you, you would recognize that's what it is. But here's one thing that secular people can't deny is a longing for things to be made right. Mm -hmm. And if there is no God and the world is run by natural selection, why would we have that longing? That's not a very useful survival technique. Uh, as a Christian, I would explain it as you have that longing because you're made in the image of God. You know the world is under a curse. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And God has put eternity in your heart. Hmm. Hmm. So this, this, this even goes to uh, sort of the inconsistency we see in how some of the countries um, have chosen to deal with the coronavirus. I mean, one of some of the working models were to just allow the coronavirus to work its way through populations. Uh, I know the National Health Society or department in the UK thought through this. Uh, our, our country thought through this. But then when they saw the amount of deaths mm. that this could happen, they, they pulled that back. Why is that, Mark? Are they just inconsistent Darwinians? They are, yes. Yeah. They are. One of the basic uh, foundational principles of Darwinian evolution is that uh, the, the fittest will survive and natural selection determines that. Uh, and therefore our biggest concern or the biggest concern of nature and the process that governs the world is survival. But at some point in the 20th century, uh, I think it's just been in the last couple of decades, uh, evolutionists have jumped from survival as the goal of natural selection to now flourishing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a huge leap and it's unjustified logically, but they've come to realize that, you know, in a society like ours where we are, we've gone way beyond survival. In fact, if survival is the only point of, nature, then why bother with things like art? There's really no survival uh, quality for that. Um, so they've, they've pushed the idea now of flourishing, and yet they still wrestle with questions of, is this flourishing for individuals, flourishing for the good of the whole? Hmm. And that's probably where the debates come in with the, with the NHS in the UK and, and even here in the US. Do we look out for individuals or the whole and and the truth is that's an ethical dilemma you can't always discern between those right 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 but that and, that, and you know that goes I, as the conversations i've had with secularists is that you know they feel i'm straw manning at that point you know oh, come on you know yeah darwinism as, an, as a theory certainly is survival in the fittest but you don't you don't need a god to exist to know that you need to treat someone humanely and your sympathy and well let's you know there's you know the the um, Darwinian ethicist. Let's look at the ant. Let's look at other animals, and they'll say, "Oh, they're they're always altruistic. That's part of surviving as a species in general." It seems like they're just pushing the problem off outside their own argument, uh, sort of making it a, an assumption that one can make without having to defend why they believe that. So, yeah, it's a it's a bait and switch. Nature is red in tooth and claw, uh, and the truth is, if we're going to behave like nature and not like a higher being in nature, then it is all about. It's right back to survival. Lions are not concerned about the flourishing of the zebra population. They're <laughs> concerned about their own survival. And even Richard Dawkins in his book, The Selfish Gene, says everything about us, our whole programming, our genetic code is designed for survival uh, for our DNA pool. Um, and I, I remember talking with a, a leader of the Free Thought Society here in Lancaster where he was saying that we should be concerned about human flourishing. And my question to him was, as a good Darwinian, you should be concerned about the flourishing of those closest to you genetically. But now you want to extend that to your community and to our nation and then to the whole world. Whatever happened to the selfish gene? It, it can't be love for everyone. That destroys the whole basis of the whole uh, of natural selection. Mm -hmm. It's inconsistent. But 
you can only be inconsistent because one of the things we point out with um, non-Christian worldviews is they're unlivable. Hmm. Well, that, and that goes something you had just said. You had said that it's one thing we can explain suffering maybe in, with a Darwinian model because you say, well, there's a breakdown of health, but would you, the desire for something other than what nature gives you is something that's really inexplainable. I'm, I'm working through G.K. Chesterton's Everlasting Man, and he, he keeps running into that same problem. I, I like the idea that we all just sort of came out of muck, but I can't get past the idea that I, I, don't, I don't want that to be true. Where did, I, where did I get this? Where did this happen? So there's something about us. And, and there, I think, and you'd said this before off camera, which happened before, that, that Christianity really provides um, a very full explanation for exactly why that's the case. Um, so, I mean, again, give us some apologetic uh, direction here as we as we face this moment. Sure. Uh, one of the big, the main argument for atheism uh, is that if there's an all-powerful, all-loving God, then there shouldn't be evil. Uh, but there is evil in the world because if God was all-powerful, he could stop it. If he was all-loving, he would want to stop it. But there's evil. Uh, therefore, there there is no God. Uh, that began with David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, and it is the standard atheistic argument even today. So it's interesting that the problem of evil and suffering is the primary argument against God. And yet, it was in 1974 that the uh, Notre Dame philosopher Alvin Plantinga uh, wrote a book on, um, it's now called The Nature of Necessity, I believe it is, where he argued that we can't possibly know if God has a good reason or not for the suffering that he allows. And if, if God has a reason that we can't understand, which we should expect with an infinite being, then that is not an argument against mm. God. Mm. And truthfully, since then, it's widely recognized in philosophical circles that uh, that argument no longer holds water, primarily because of that one man, Alvin Plantinga. Mm. Mm. And yet for many people, um, emotionally, even for Christians, uh, we wrestle with why does God allow Yes. Some of the terrible suffering that we see in the world. Why does he allow it? Um, we don't have explanations. And I often compare it to this. Our minds are like calculators. God's mind and purposes are like a supercomputer. Hmm. When we demand that God explain to us evil and suffering, it's like us saying, I, wanna, I want you to download your operating system on my calculator mind. <laughs> and God says, I, it wouldn't make sense to you. It would crash. You, you, you can't do it. You just have to trust me. And then we look into the scriptures and see God's actions in history, and we come to realize God is trustworthy. Uh, and, and yet he has made these promises. He's revealed himself in Christ. He himself has suffered on the cross. And so we have a God who's sovereign and a God who suffers at the same time. That's part of the Christian answer. Hmm. Whereas, again, if you're a consistent evolutionist, the world is the way it's supposed to be. Uh -huh. right. As a Christian, I can look at the world and say that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. As I go back to your, Mark Draper, go back to your point about whether we suffer from a lack of normalcy, that it's this, it's, it's maybe we've been infiltrated by secularism as if to say, yeah, the world I've got is the way it ought to be. And so since I already know that, I, I, I mourn the loss of, of any change to that, what it ought to be-ness. Um, yeah. Is that what you were getting at, Mark? Yeah. And I, I, I think, I think when I, when I look at this and I, and, and we're historians, so we, we try to study the history of, of, and particularly Western the Western world. It seems as if, as I hear Mark and I, and I process what we're seeing, um, that you actually have a hybrid of sorts. Uh, it's almost a, uh, an a la carte philosophy of suffering where you have some people who they, they want to sound like Darwinians, um, but 
they're still playing with some borrowed capital. Mm-hmm. And because Christianity has affected the West so much. I mean, as, as Mark was talking, I thought, you know, it, it's the mom in Walmart hoarding toilet paper in her shopping cart that's probably a more consistent Darwinian than some of these other people, right? Because exactly. my kids need toilet paper, right? My jeans need toilet paper and my, my jeans need bread and this, that, and the other. Um, so, that, but I, I think that's part of the tension we are in the West, right? We, we do have these... If, if, if there's a, if I was reading Paul and talking about the flesh versus the spirit, what is the, what is the flesh for a Westerner? Well, Western ideas, Western uh, comfort, Western affluence, uh, Western definition of, of um, normalcy. Um, you know, Dawn and I, we, we like to watch documentaries and we'll see different parts of the world like that. I don't have to go there. You know, I don't ever have to visit there. Um because that's that that would that's like bringing about what it seemed to be suffering. So I think that's it. I think I think we're 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 hitting it. That uh, what we're feeling with grief, what we're feeling with what we've lost, um, and somewhat the genie's out of the bottle for a lot of people who've been trying to jam the genie back into the bottle. Uh, yeah, I, I think this is this is good. So we Mark, we we've we've talked about the 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 Christian understanding apologetically for suffering um and it seems as if there's a theological sort of you know uh, systematic theology biblical theology and then there's sort of the lived experiential theology what you which you you and your wife were, were explaining but uh this virus when we first heard about it was in not in the west it was in the east um in amongst buddhist culture confucian culture so um how would how sort of Eastern philosophy address suffering um, and, and think through some of that? For, for a lot of the Eastern religions, suffering is an illusion and the goal is enlightenment. And so the way that you attain enlightenment is you rid yourself of the illusion that suffering exists or that you are suffering. You rid yourself of the illusion that uh, you are an individual distinct from the world. And uh, both Buddhism and Hinduism has elements of this, uh, but it's also also has the elements of uh, karma. The idea there that when you suffer, you deserve it because of sin you've committed in a past life. And your goal is to pay off karma so that you can move on toward enlightenment in the next life. You move up. And the goal is through endless lives. I think I saw the Dalai Lama one time say he believed he had lived a million lives. Hmm. Uh, the goal is through each succession of life to do better until you've paid off the karma and you can escape samsara, the endless wheel of life and death, and then attain, obtain nirvana. But there's some inherent contradictions in there. Number one is uh, the inescapable experience of suffering. Uh, you always want to say to a person like this, hold your thumb there, I'm going to get my hammer. And I want to get it really loud. And you tell me that's an illusion. That doesn't really hurt. <laughs> Uh, but the other one is this. I've often thought about if, if I believed that and I came across someone who was on the sidewalk suffering, I could pay off some of my karma by helping that person. Uh-huh. In doing that, I'm keeping them from paying off theirs. Uh-huh. So am I, am I actually hurting them, in which case then helping them becomes negative and I'm going to have to pay that off? It's a self-contradiction. Huh. And, uh, and it's a sad situation that you have all these people uh, who believe these worldviews then that um, are trying to deny the reality of suffering hmm. when, in contrast, Christianity 
embraces suffering as not only a reality, but tells us why it is the way it is. There's a curse on the world, but also gives us hope that not through our efforts, but through the work of Christ, someday this curse will be lifted. And that the normal way in God's plan is suffering or humiliation before exaltation, suffering before glory. There's at least five or six occasions in First Peter where Peter mentions suffering, and right after that ties that to glory. Hmm. So as Christians, we need to have a different perspective that the path to glory, not our own glory, but the glory of God in our glorification is through suffering. So while we grieve when we go through it, we also shouldn't consider this to be God dealing us a bad hand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, that, I mean, that's the, the thing about the, the crucifixion. I think that Paul, you know, calls it a, a stumbling block and foolishness is, that, is the idea that life is about avoiding death, right? I mean, it, life is in one sense to the, to the Greek, it's the antithesis of death or death is the antithesis of life. In the crucifixion, life comes through death in some way. And then I think if, you know, if, if we grapple with the crucifixion that way, life makes sense. And without the crucifixion, in some ways life doesn't make sense because if suffering is the inevitable conclusion of all of our lives, it seems to me that really is there's no sense in morality. There's no sense in living well. There's no sense even enjoying life. Um, mm -hmm. But the crucifixion, if that's true and is real, then death is not the end. It's a doorway. Then that changes everything about the way we live. And so I guess, I guess in a sense, yeah, the way you're talking is that this, the, the, when you said, and I keep going back to your article again, just because it was so powerful for me, but that suffering has its work to do is actually to realign our, the way we think in our heart, to expect death, not to think that we're going to avoid it somehow. Yeah. And one of the things Tim Keller brings up in his book, uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, I'll hold that up there, mm. is he points, that, uh, points out the fact that the secular mindset today has left us no resources in which to deal with um, suffering. He says our, our main way of dealing with it is identify it and eliminate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and these days we can do that with a lot. I mean, mm -hmm. when I went through my kidney transplant, just studying that now that I, I talk and write about uh, ethics of organ transplantation, we live in a wonderful world medically and technologically. I remember my doctor telling me when I was first diagnosed 15 years ago, he said, Mark, we want to put off your transplant as long as we can because every few months improvements in organ transplantation wow. are developed. So the longer we can hold off, the better it will be for you. Mm. But here's the problem is there's all kinds of suffering in our modern world that no technique can help. Mm. And so for the secular person, when they really go through difficult suffering, they have no resources to deal with it. Mm. And that's why only the gospel can, can provide the resources by helping them to see that Christ has suffered once for all for us so that we don't have to suffer the eternal, ultimate suffering of hell. What I'm hearing too with this is that um, the Western sort of what we'll call the secular Western approach to suffering is let's muster our resources and blast this thing out of the water. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we can't do that, let's blame somebody for not letting us do that. <laughs> Makes good politics anyway. Well, it don't, everything gets, you know, what the, the, the Marxists said, everything's political, even, even a game of chess. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and then the Eastern, the Eastern approach is, is sort of, well, it's an illusion and, and both are rather simplistic in some way. Where Christianity, and I wrote this down as you were talking, Mark, it's complicated. It's, it's holding intention, grief, mm -hmm. and joy at the same time. It's holding intention, Christ died for sin. Christ ushered in the, the kingdom. 
yet we're still waiting for the consummation. And we know we're waiting for the consummation because we know it's not supposed to be this way. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're, you're left in a far more paradoxical and at times mystery. You have to hold on to mystery and tension and, and what Paul says, faith in what you haven't seen. Um, although I, I would think to say that pain is, a, is only an illusion seems you need a lot more faith for that one. But, but yeah, but is that, does that a fair assessment? Yeah, you bring out a good point. I often say that the secular atheist explanation for the world, for our um, human rights and morality and suffering is paper thin and flimsy. Mm -hmm. uh, you could probably describe the whole thing in a pamphlet. Uh, whereas life, life is complex and the Christian explanation for all these things is full orbed and matches the complexity of real life. Mm. So that the Christian worldview and the Christian explanation can explain the depths of so much human experience. Whereas for the atheistic worldview, the answer always comes back to natural selection. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Bible yeah. of the fittest. And that's just the way it is. And they cannot explain, for example, why uh, why people mourn when they lose things? Yeah, when they yeah. lose loved ones and they lose lose relationships. Why why do they mourn if the nature of life is this way? Shouldn't we rejoice? Shouldn't we stand by and applaud nature for coronavirus hmm. or calling out more weak people? Mm. No, no one does that. Why not? Because intuitively mm. we mourn and weep because real life is so much more complex than that thin, flimsy explanation. It's actually a great picture of what it looks like when you try to suppress the truth. Mm, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We we got a couple minutes left, and I, and I did want to get at this, and I I wanted to ask you uh, one of the best talks I've ever heard on medical ethics uh, was from Dr. Farnham, and I've told you you got to hear this guy talk on medical ethics. This is this is good stuff, um, and and it's because of his study and his experience. Um, and also, Dr. Farnham teaches Christian ethics uh, at, at LBC Capital. And so I did want to just give you a chance to, to comment on just how you see sort of this coronavirus um, impinging uh, on ethics, um, mm. because ethical systems are rooted in ideologies and philosophies. Uh, they don't come out of a vacuum. So you have to have sort of a Darwinian philosophy, ideology to create Darwinian ethics. How's a Christian ethicist, uh, are you looking at this situation? Well, it starts with uh, recognizing the dignity and sanctity of each individual person so that, um, for example, let's take the worst case scenario is that we have an overload in the healthcare system and limited supplies. Yeah. Um, a Christian ethic would uh, say we have to treat each person with dignity as best we can, but realize there may be some difficult, um, some difficult decisions having to be made. And I compare this to organ transplantation. Uh, in organ transplantation, people past a certain age can't get an organ because there are too many younger people waiting for it and their, their life expectancy is not very long. Hmm. We also don't give organs to people who have shown a pattern of life of irresponsibility and re, you know, won't take their medicine, won't take care of themselves, or if they have comorbidities. So th this, this question is incredibly complex. Hmm. We do know um, that we ought to treat people with dignity and concern, and that we ought to make sure as best of our abilities that our healthcare systems can meet the needs of individuals, while realizing also it is not our duty uh, as Christians to 
to avail ourselves of every possible medical option in order to stay alive. I have a, my wife and I have living wills because if we get to the point where um, the only thing that would save my life if I was dying would be some painful procedure or to continue a medication or to go through something drastic, um, I don't want that. I, I'm okay with the Lord taking me home if I'm in that position. Uh, my daughter's worked in the ICU for years and she says, Dad, so many times families won't let a person who's clearly dying go. And so they insist on painful procedures and surgeries and medications. As Christians, we need to be prepared if God's going to take us not to try to stay alive at all costs. As Christians, we have a different perspective on that. I mean, Mark, we're not, we're not getting off this ship alive, right? I mean, it, I mean, I, I mean it, it just seems to me that everything I'm sold myself, and I think where my own weaknesses are, are particularly poignant in my life, is this idea that I, I think I can get out of this alive if I just really concentrate or eat right or something like that. that mm. I mean, the sense, I think the thing about the gospel that makes sense to me so much is that it embraces fully this fact that you're, you're not getting out of this without death. In fact, we're called into Christ's death and baptism as a foretaste of what our actual baptism will be into death in his crucifixion, into his resurrection. And I, and I think to, there's my thought on this, Mark, and I'd love to hear you. I know we've got a, we're a little over time here, but is we don't have a very vivid imagination as Christians for that, right? I mean, I think in the West where we've reduced the gospel down to, he's going to help us get by today. He's going to meet my dreams. And really the, the vision for the fact that Paul says, you know, what, what he's giving us is so much more than this. Like we just, we lack the imagination, right? We keep reducing God's blessings down to whatever I'm going to get in this life rather than seeing this as just a foretaste, an anteroom, a shadow, whatever word we want, that what God is trying to bring us to is a vision of what he's going to ultimately do. Help us with that. How, how do we get that imagination? How do we, how do we make that more, more robust? We need to go back to preaching eschatology, teaching eschatology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, growing up, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, we heard about eschatology all the time. Not all of it was necessarily biblical. A lot of it was speculative. But there was a focus and a hope on the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state. And that was, our, that was to be our main love and concern. But uh, we've become so comfortable. I, I don't remember hearing much about eschatology in the last 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not constantly held in front of us. Our hope is to be with Christ. And that's, that's where we want to be. And sure, we would mourn if we would, you know, if, if I died, my wife would mourn, my kids would mourn, my grandkids. Um, but as you say, we're, we're all going toward death. And we need to have a worldview and a theology that is robust saying, while God gives us life, we will seek to glorify him in, in suffering or prosperity. And uh, we are preparing ourselves for death because we will soon be with him. And that needs to be our focus. It needs to be held up as the ideal, not as um, so many comfortable people. You know, what's your 401k look like? Well, mine looks abysmal. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with saving and preparing, but mm-hmm. if, if that's your hope, uh, then you, you've missed the whole point. Mark, I had a question came in my mind when, when you were talking about the, the living wills and your daughter saying, you know, there are people who would just put, a love member, a family member through whatever to save their life. And, and some of it could be right. What Dan is saying, we, we, we think we can get off this ship alive. Uh, but wh- why would, why would some Christians push back at that? I mean, I can hear some Christians from my upbringing saying, you know, no, you, you should do every possible thing. And wh- where's that come from? 
I think it comes partially, not completely, but partially from a simplistic view of uh, a pro-life position mm. that we must do everything we can to stay alive at all costs um, and practice extreme measures. But when you see the reality of that, mm. um, I've, I've talked with a funeral home director in Lancaster County who uh, talked about the, the horrendous nature of what is done to bodies in order to keep people alive when they're clearly dying. Talked to the director of the hospice center in Mount Joy. And um, it's a beautiful place where when, when you're clearly dying to go there, so you don't have to die in your home or in a hospital. It's a nice alternative. I asked her what the average stay was, and I think it was something like 17 days. Hmm. And I was shocked. And, and, and she said, yeah, most, most families uh, who have a, a loved one who's dying don't want to give up, even when it's clear that they're going to die. And so rather than come and, and spend their last days in a peaceful place like this, they'll just keep going and going and going. So hmm. Christians, we're not obligated to pursue every means to stay alive. We recognize that when our time comes, as Paul says, he's re I'm ready to depart. Um, it doesn't, it, having a living will doesn't mean that someone wouldn't try to save my life or give me CPR. Right. But if I was clearly dying, they wouldn't go through extreme measures to keep me alive. And I saw this with my own mother. She was in a car accident, lived for five days with severe brain damage. Um, doctors finally came in and said, she's brain dead. There's no activity there. And yet the machines were keeping her heart beating and her lungs mm. breathing. Mm. And we had to realize that, you know, that she's essentially gone. We don't need to maintain these artificial means to keep her body alive because, um, clearly the accident has taken her life. And we had some amount of peace in taking her off that life support because we knew that uh, she was good. She was with the Lord already. Wow. Well, you know what? Uh, I want to, I want to thank uh, Mark. I don't, I don't know, uh, Dr. Draper, whether we have anybody on who is interested in asking questions, but I don't see anybody uh, on at this moment. No, but that, and that's all right. We know this is a, this is a Monday and the, the real value here is that's recorded and uh, we'll encourage students uh, to take a listen and to hear, um, to hear you, Dr. Farnham, uh, primarily. But, you know, one of the things for those listening that we're trying to do on this little podcast is really talk about how Christians need to negotiate these things. That's the verb we're using. And we don't mean that negotiation with the world means that we're willing to compromise. What it means is we as modern Christians have got to figure out how to hold our faith in a modern time. And that's different than the way that believers would have held it in an ancient time or in the medieval time. And that means we've got to be savvy, thoughtful, um, nuanced, um, not in our belief, but in how we make our belief matter and how we understand it in our present time. And I, I think what you've helped me with, Mark, probably more than you know, is as a modern, starting to get a better view for the fact that I've anchored so much of my trust in God and things that themselves are idols. It's almost like God has subsidiary idols he sent mm -hmm. out to help me. He's, he's interested in me, but he wants me to be happy. So he sent out a few of these smaller idols to do his work for him. And I realize how much I've been attached to them, even, even through your suffering and your discussion of it. So I I want to make a public statement of thank you mm -hmm. to you for how much you've helped me. I don't, I don't think you'll probably yeah. ever know that, but, um, but I think these conversations are helpful because you, you know, those who are watching see that this is, this is a, this is an ongoing discussion. We don't sitting here like we've got to figure it out. We're trying to manage as what, as best we can, what it means to be in the gospel and under Christ. So I want to thank you, Mark, for coming on and talking this yeah. way. And Dr. Draper, I don't know if there's anything else we. Yeah, I, I would echo that. And I would say um, a lot of the questions we fired at Dr. Farnham were questions that, we were processing ourselves or yeah. trying to make sense of. Um, we have 
some idea of some answers we thought, but we thought we really do want to hear from someone like Dr. Farnham. So again, yeah, thank you. Uh, there's been a lot of times through some of these, particularly since I've heard Mark talk on ethics and medical ethics. I, uh, fortunately, I, I have Mark's phone number. I can text him questions. So not everybody has that Are we that putting option. that up? Are we putting We're that gonna up? Put that up? We're gonna put that up. Yeah, and just, just text him your questions. Yeah, <laughs> since you weren't gonna be able to hear for this. Uh, but you know, Mark, is there anything, final thing you wanna add to this or uh, what you would want to kind of as a takeaway? Just to say that uh, when God ordains suffering in your life, if you respond to it by seeking to know him more, uh, you will find the strength to endure. You'll find a peace that passes all understanding. And the, the fruit of the suffering of drawing closer to God and having him purge things in your life is, is well worth the suffering. And uh, Tim Keller said this, and I believe it's true. If you knew what God knew, you would do exactly with your life what God's doing with your life. Mm. Great, great way to sum it up. That's a mic drop. You can't that's top that. That's a mic drop. Yeah, let's that's just, a mic yeah, drop. Let's, let's be done with yeah. that. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you.